Welcome to Swift Unscripted. Swift podcasts give you, the listener, the opportunity to hear the inside story and be part of the conversation about all means all with leaders in the field of inclusive education and school-wide transformation. Here we are at Swift headquarters at the University of Kansas, recording a podcast on the topic of the role of paraprofessionals. Our guest today is Dr. Dan Pollitt. Dan is on the evaluation team at Swift and plays a large role in managing the Swift Fidelity tools, but he also has a background as a paraprofessional. So I'm hoping today, Dan, that you can share some of your stories with us and some of the things that you've learned about the role of paraprofessionals. Welcome. Sure. Thank you, Allison. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I appreciate we're glad it. to have you. So why don't we start with you just telling me a little bit about your background. What led you to your current position here at Swift? Like, what's the journey that you went on to find this position? Sure. So I graduated from the University of Wisconsin-Madison with a degree in child development and immediately went into a master's program in Minnesota. And um, during that time, I was looking for a job while being a full-time master's student, and um, I got hired on at a middle school as a paraeducator, or we called it back then a paraprofessional. Um, And so I I graduated with my master's in learning disabilities uh, and then came down to the University of Kansas and earned my doctorate in special education, learning disabilities, and literacy. So that was a couple years ago that I finished that. Um, I think we're going to talk a little bit about my time as a paraprofessional and as a paraeducator. And I did that for about two years in southern Minnesota, and I worked primarily with a boy uh, named Alex. And Alex was a 14-year-old nonverbal boy with autism, and he'll probably be the centerpiece of our story (laughs) story this afternoon. We all have one of those students (laughs) that we remember in that way. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about Alex and what you learned as a paraprofessional from Alex. So I think one of the interesting things about my experience with Alex um, is it's a good story of what some experiences may be like working in special education. And then I'll fast forward a couple years later and tell about a positive experience of being a paraprofessional and what it can look like in a completely different environment. Uh, Like I said, Alex was a 14-year-old boy, nonverbal, with autism. Uh, He was in a group home. He didn't have any family members that were uh, involved. And uh, he was very violent. He had, when I was hired, I didn't know this at the time, but he had just headbutted his his, uh, teacher in the mouth and knocked out her two front teeth. So they didn't tell you that in the interview? That wasn't a part of the interview process, no. <laughs> and what I what I kind of found out was I was I was more or less hired to be a bodyguard. Um, there was already a para, a male para, working one-on-one with Alex. And this was a two-on-one environment. So he had two full-time paraeducators with him. And uh, we were hired to be with him all day throughout the school day. My first training as a paraeducator was on restraining Alex. So I I went and learned how to um, put his hands behind his back like he was some sort of criminal, how to place my legs in certain places um, to, uh, quote, unquote, get him to calm down. Um, The most interesting thing about my job as a para with Alex was the location. We were in a janitor's closet. And when I say a janitor's closet, there was a, a, a mop bucket sink so you could wheel up your bright yellow mop bucket and mop, dump in your dirty water, 
there were chemicals in this in this room. You could fill up your mop bucket with soap and warm water and go mop the school. Wow. Um, right when I was hired, they were just installing a window. So this was being transformed from a janitor's closet to a classroom slash janitor's closet. <laughs> um, they... <clears throat> Put in a window, but we sat in this this little janitor's closet, two-on-one. There was a desk, a mop bucket, sink, and uh, two male adult paraeducators and Alex every single day. Really? I mean, the picture you're painting is sad. I mean, that sounds yeah. so isolating. I, I, I didn't know better. Yeah. Um, I didn't know any better. It was very isolating. The only time that we interacted with other students was during lunch. We went to the resource room and uh, had lunch with the uh, other students with disabilities. Um, we uh, would go on walks around the school track outside the building, and it would be kind of like our little three-person groupies. It would be myself, the other para, and Alex walking around the track every day for about 20 minutes. Um, but but that, was, that was what I did. Was I, w- I was pretty much hired to be a bodyguard for Alex. So did you have any interact? Like, what were your interactions with his teacher at that time? Did he have any interactions with the teachers? With the general education or special education teachers, or well, all of his interactions with the paraprofessionals. That's a really good question. He did have a PECS program. So, if you're not familiar with PECS, I teach undergraduate and graduate courses here at the department in special education, and we talk about different interventions for kids with autism. And one of them is PECS, which stands for Picture Exchange Communication System. And you may have seen it as um, a board that has uh, small inch by inch squares that are Velcroed, and they visually depict activities children would do throughout the day, like mm-hmm. I need to wash my hands or use the restroom or I would like more milk or yes or no or my name is Alex. It, it visually depict uh, a way for children to communicate who do not have the ability to verbally communicate. Alex did have a PEX board. It was really simplistic, so I would say there were probably maybe 15 phrases or verbalizations on that board. Um, we did menial tasks that prepared him for a, I forget the name of it, uh, 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 like a work program after... S- oh, like a transition type? Yeah, but it, it was so supposed like to be like a workshop sheltered workshop, I think Got is it. what I'm thinking of. And what we did for his curriculum was if you were to go to Home Depot and you're looking for some nuts and bolts, you may go into that aisle and there's a clear container that has the nuts and bolts Pre-assembled, so the nuts are already on the bolts. We trained Alex to put those nuts on the bolts, screw them appropriately, put it into a box, a clear plastic box, and fill a cardboard box with about, I don't know, 20 or 30 of those. And that was what he learned to do as a 14-year-old. No social skill prep work, um, not curriculum connected to geography or money or things like that. It was kind of preparing him for a sheltered workshop. Um, and what was the role of the teacher, the special education teacher or the general education teacher? Were they just providing that um, curriculum or were they that's a really good question. interacting with him? I would say myself and the other para were with Alex all day, every day. And I did not see the special education teacher very often. Did she you ever have any interaction with the general education she, teacher or general education? With the general education teacher, no. We did not go to any classes that Alex's peers would have attended. Um, 
like I said, there was a resource room for other children with disabilities, but we only went in there for lunch and special activities. We didn't go in there to do group work together or anything. That's so sad considering what we know the research says about. Yeah. um, So Alex was very violent. So like I said, the reason that I was hired was kind of to be his bodyguard or a bouncer almost. But what I came to learn, and I was was taking coursework in my master's program to I was working on learning disabilities. And um, something that I learned about that I did not know anything about was what we what is called a Dynavox. Do you know mm-hmm. what a Dynavox is? I do, yeah. So if you're not familiar with the Dynavox, if you're younger than Allison and I, <laughs> um, it's kind of like an iPad before iPads or speak and spell if you're familiar with those. It has a, a, a LCD screen or multiple little screens and it, it visualizes activities that the child wants to use or do or say and it can speak it through a speaker like, uh, my name is Dan, I would like a cookie, may I use the restroom, things like that. Alex was violent, I came to learn, because he didn't have any communication system. His PEC system was pretty not uh, undeveloped, and um, he could not advocate for himself what he wanted or what he needed or what he was interested in. I wrote a small grant for a couple hundred dollars, and I, I got that grant, and we um, got Alex a Dynavox. He, uh, once he, we taught him how to use that, myself and the other para, he, his violent tendencies decreased significantly. Um, that was really important because uh, imagine being somebody who has autism, is not able to communicate verbally, and you know you have interests and likes and loves and wants and needs, and there's no way that you've ever been taught to do that. So we went from doing hand-over-hand training of how to put nuts and bolts into a box to using a Dynavox that by the end of my second year with Alex, he could communicate, he would hug me, uh, he could advocate for his interests. Um, There wasn't any restraining or grabbing and those types of things because we found a way for him to be included in being an independent person. It's such an important reminder of the role of communication and behavior. I mean, it's not surprising that if you couldn't communicate, you would use your behaviors as a way to do that. One of the things that Alex, we learned that he really liked to do was he loved deep touch. So deep, uh, very hard hugs. So you might call it a bear hug, giving your, your best friend or your buddy a hug. Alex absolutely loved deep, hard touches. And um, those pressures kind of relieved him significantly. We didn't know that before he had the Dynavox, and it became something that, you know, just like you need to calm down and go watch TV for 10 minutes after a rough day or go to the gym and exercise or whatever your stress reliever is, Alex needed that uh, deep touch connection pressure to help. And once he had his Dynavox, we basically learned that that was something he wanted and needed, and it really helped him get through the day without being aggressive or sad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So... Well, that's great. What other things was he able to communicate with his Dynavox? Um, by the end of our second year, we were working on introducing ourselves. So shaking hands, um, saying, hi, my name is Alex. I live at this address, and these are some of my favorite things. So I remember right before I left, the end of my second year, 
we would uh, had Alex going around and like introducing himself to people using the Dynavox, and that was something that. That's just a good social skill for anybody, right, right, right. <laughs> regardless of if you have a disability or can you talk or not, um, you should be able to advocate for yourself. So things like that socially, I think, was really important for him. Did he ever get opportunities to practice those skills with his peers? Um, we did do, as I mentioned, we went into the resource room for lunch, and I would say... I'm a little fuzzy on the details, so I can't give you a really good story at the moment, but I would say by the end of the second year, that was something that he looked forward to, was having lunch with other peers. But the whole time I was there, we were in the janitor's closet. That never that never changed. So I know that paraprofessional isn't your only role. I know that you've also um, served as a teacher. So I'm assuming that from your role as a paraprofessional, you learned a lot about what works and what didn't. So how did that kind of, how did you utilize that in your role as a teacher? So um, my experience with Alex was in Minnesota and I came down to Kansas in Kansas City and I was a classroom teacher down here in middle school. And I was fortunate enough to have a, a paraeducator, multiple paraeducators throughout my time as a classroom teacher um, in my classroom. And one particular uh, my, my last paraeducator before I left the classroom and went into my doctorate program, um, her name was Leah. And I think it is a good example of what it's like to sit on both sides of the aisle. So I sat in that role as a paraeducator that was segregated, that wasn't a part of the gen ed classroom. I was in the janitor's closet. I was with a boy who was uh, pretty pretty. Um, segregated from the rest of the population. So I didn't want that to happen for my own para when I had uh, opportunity to work with another adult who was working with children. So Leah was my para, and I did a lot of things that I think promote inclusion for children. So uh, Leah was not a licensed teacher, but um, she worked, and I trained her to work on reading interventions. I'm a literacy expert. So she would work at a kidney table, you know, for my fourth graders of where she may reinforce some of the literacy practices like comprehension or phonemic awareness or um, writing strategies about what students had just read. She worked at kidney tables um, to help reinforce some of those practices. She would help me with lesson planning, and we would collaborate um, almost daily on lesson planning and what types of ideas we would work together on. If you are a behavior expert and you're familiar with like check and check out, of uh, if you're working in elementary, you may see happy faces, smiley faces, or frown faces of how your how your day's going. Leo was my check and check out expert for PBIS. So any student that came in, if I had a student that had some behavior concerns or we were just kind of wondering how she was doing for the day, Leo ran our check and check out program and assigned and awarded points and stars and smiley faces and um, uh, we had a, a, a token economy system set up so if students had a good enough day they would have some sort of reward. So she did some of those things that helped with that. Yeah, so it sounds like she played a really important role in your classroom. Yeah, you know, um, I wanted her to know coming into my classroom that although I was the teacher and at the end of the day it's it's my decision, her voice is just as important as mine because she has shared experiences and um, brings something to the table that I don't. A good example is one year I taught physics and I just taught physics because I thought it was fun. I didn't really know the most about <laughs> physics. <clears throat> like I said earlier, my background was in child development, not physics. So 
I taught physics one year as an um, extracurricular course that students took, and my whole reason for teaching it was because I wanted to have our kids do the egg drop. Did you ever right. do the egg oh, drop? Yeah. So, as a teacher, I did. <laughs> yeah. So the egg drop is pretty much where you get to go up on a tall building or a ladder or the roof and throw an egg off and try to find a way to make sure it doesn't break. So I, that was the entire reasoning behind me wanting to teach the egg drop project and physics. Well, I didn't know a lot about physics and geometry, and I basically put Leah in charge of some of that stuff. So for a couple of weeks, we built parachutes and had styrofoam and different materials we wanted to use to help build our, our protecting shields for the eggs. And Leah, as a paraeducator, ran that whole part of the project, that whole program for us. Um, the students collected data. Uh, we graphed the data. Uh, we timed it. We, we measured whether or not the egg cracked at all. But my point is that Leah did all of that work for us in kind of I gave it to her and let her run it. And that's a really good example, though, of you recognizing a strength that she had that maybe wasn't one of your strengths and utilizing your strengths in different ways. Yeah, I, I was in charge of going on the roof. She was in charge of everything else. So that's right, yeah. The fun part, yes. yeah. Yes, So I know now in your current role, you do a lot with the um, Swift Fidelity of Implementation tool. And one component of that is really measuring how uh, our partners in inclusive schools, how they use paraprofessionals within um, inclusive settings. So can you tell me a little bit about what you've learned is important for the role of paraprofessionals as schools are really working to include students with disabilities, even significant disabilities, more and more um, having access to general education curriculum? That's a really good question, Allison. Um, If you think about all the people that help keep a school open and operating every single day, There are a ton of adults, from the bus drivers early in the morning to the janitors late at night or early in the morning or both, to the front office, to the lunch staff, to the people working on the grounds or the landscaping, to the athletic director. You think of all the adults that help operate the school that are not a licensed classroom teacher. And there's probably more people doing that than there are actual classroom (laughs) teachers, right? Yeah. But we typically think of academics and behavior as just the job of a licensed, certified classroom teacher. And that doesn't have to always be like that. I have some of my best experiences, both as a student and as a teacher, of working with the janitor or the volleyball coach who, when I had a bad day, I could go talk to that person or I could send a student to that volleyball coach. I know of examples around the country of the lunch staff or the bus drivers being assigned or asked to work with a, a boy who's having a rough week or a rough month or home difficult home life. And getting back to paraeducators and um, paraprofessionals, paraeducators bring a host of experiences and knowledge sources and expertise that we can use in the classroom. And I know what it's like to be the para assigned two-on-one, two paras to one student full-time all day and I never went into a gen ed classroom and I never saw other students besides Alex. I also know what it's like to be a classroom teacher and have somebody like Leah who made my job more rewarding, it made my job easier, 
And quite frankly, I wouldn't have been as good of a teacher if it wasn't for having another buddy in the classroom to help me do my job more efficiently. She could take a group of students that were in the kidney table or working on math facts or math cards and not only teach them, but kind of reduce the student to child, student to teacher ratio. So it's easier for her because she's working with a small group and it's easier for me because I've taken six less students to, to educate in a small group. So to answer your question, I think it's important that we acknowledge and value all the adults in the school, including paraeducators, who are not licensed teachers and how we can collaborate with them or lesson plan with them or use them as a check-in, check-out person for students that may be having a rough day or a rough go. It sounds like just thinking about how we can use them in a more efficient way. Because in some ways, when you're telling your story of Alex and then there were two adults assigned to one student who ultimately needed some communication supports, it sounds like that was a waste of resources in that you never were able to work with other students compared to when you're talking about Leah, who was working with small groups of students and working on things with the whole class, that really her strengths were utilized with more than just a one-on-one student. Yeah, I mean... Maybe Leah's listening today. I'm not sure. But she is now, because of her experience, and she's told me this, I wrote her a letter of recommendation for her master's program. After her experience as a paraeducator, she loved teaching and those experiences of getting the taste of being a teacher, that she went on and she is now a dual language special education teacher in the state of Colorado, um, and she absolutely loves it. And so because of her experiences of being included as a somebody whose opinion we valued, um, it led her down the path of where she could be her own teacher and have her work with other paras herself. So I think that's, that's really... Um, well, Leah, I hope you're listening today. And if so, thank you for all you've done for students. Yeah. <laughs> the role that you played. Yeah. So as we're kind of finishing up here, I just want to ask you if you have any advice for both paraprofessionals and for teachers working with paraprofessionals. What advice would you give based on your experiences? I think that the profession of teaching, we talk a lot about collaboration and co-teaching and professional learning communities and those things but at the end of the day when the buzz the uh, the bell rings most teachers shut their door and it's kind of an isolating experience it's you and 28 children and staring up in front of you if you can have the structures that exist to collaborate and plan and intentionally consider student variability and uh, ways to make your lesson planning more exciting or more engaging or more sensitive for students with diverse needs, you should do it. That should be something that you want to aspire to is to meet with paraeducators or collaborate or just get other ideas. You know, right. We work together, and I do a much better job when I'm able to bounce ideas off of you than if it was just me by myself. So I could still maybe go teach um, Myself, or we don't co-teach together, but as long as I have an opportunity to hear your opinion and value it, I think it makes me a better professional. It makes me a better teacher, and I think it ends up being better for my students as well. Right. And I think that's an important reminder also is to make sure that we're including support staff such as paraprofessionals in collaboration opportunities and professional development opportunities, things like that, so that they have those experiences as well. I'm assuming when you were one-on-one with Alex that you weren't 
um, offered collaboration time with your teacher, professional learning with the general educators. <laughs> you say professional development, and you're spot on. I was working with a student in our school, which was like 400 students, who had the most support needs. He needed the most behavior tr- supports, the most inclusion supports, and I didn't go to any training related to anything academic or behavior. Other training. than how to restrain him. It, it, except for how to hold him down if he's being aggressive. It so when seems you like say, it would have made more sense to have some professional learning on how to help him communicate so that it didn't come to that point. <laughs> I think you're right on right on the ball, and um, I would like to add, you're right. It's not only collaboration, but it's also professional development and training um, for counselors or paraeducators or other folks besides just teachers that we, we should have them at the table. Right. So uh, this is one question I like to end with when a lot of times when we do these podcasts. What is your vision for the future? So if you could think into the future of what you want it to look like 10 years from now, five years from now for paraprofessionals, for schools in general, for students with disabilities, what they have access to and what that looks like, what would you describe? Okay, so I'm going to give everybody a little bit of a homework assignment. And this is a video I watch. I, I require all of my graduate students to go watch. If you, have you ever heard of IBM's 5 and 5? I, I think so. Why don't you describe it? So IBM, before we had Amazon and Google and Facebook and Twitter and Snapchat and all of these you know, companies from the last 5 to 10, 20 years, IBM was one of the think tanks in America. Mm-hmm. It was... Uh, the place everybody wanted to work. Apologies if anybody listening is from (laughs) IBM. And IBM every year publishes something they call Five in Five. And it's five predictions they think are going to happen in the next five years. And sometimes they've been kind of silly. One of them was um, seaweed is going to be the most consumed food in the world or something like that. I don't know if you've ever had seaweed. I think it's kind of gross. <laughs> um, another one was you would be able to smell things on your phone. So I, I don't know about you. I don't want to, I don't want anybody to watch me smelling my phone on a regular yeah. basis. Yeah, that doesn't sound too But in IBM 5 and 5, it's about a 90 second video. You can find it. It may be from 2014-ish is in five years all schools will have personalized learning experiences. And it's really interesting because what IBM describes as their, remember, IBM forward thinking, the smartest people go and work for them, what they predict without ever saying anything about special education or inclusion or segregation is they basically predict individualized education plans and programs as being a new wave of teaching because we're catering to student variability, we're catering to universal design for learning, we're considering the whole child. If you go and watch this video, it's really interesting to see um, what the future thinkers believe to be the next promise in education. And then I think we're doing a lot of that stuff already, right. which is really exciting. Like it's I, maybe I'm patting ourselves on the back, but it made me feel very proud that the work that others think is important for the future are some of the same messages that we're trying to stress and promote at the Swift Center. Great answer. All means all.
All means all. <laughs> so thank you so much for your time today, uh, Dan. Uh, for our listeners, if you want to know more, you can go to swiftschools.org and click on Swift Talk, where you can find lots more stories written by leaders in the field of school-wide transformation. These leaders include school administrators, teachers, parents, paraprofessionals, others who are promoting all means all. SWIFT is a national K-8 center that provides academic and behavioral support to promote the learning and academic achievement of all students, including students with disabilities and those with the most extensive needs.